Hello and welcome to the Spike Podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and with me this week, as ever, we have Spike's editor, Tom Slater. Hello. And Spike columnist, Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on the show, the Platinum Jubilee, the Woke Police and the tragedy in Texas. So we're coming up to the Platinum Jubilee bank holiday. There's going to be lots of celebrations across the UK, as well as the official kind of events and parades. There will be an estimated 200,000 street parties and, and local events. Tom, um, to mark this occasion, I mean, what can we say at this point about the royal family and the monarchy and, and the state of them? Oh, it's, it's a big question, definitely. I mean, obviously, Spites is a Republican publication um but there's always a lot of or at least a, a, this time around kind of low level sneering mm. whenever a jubilee rolls around um and i think perspective on this is always you know what's not going to abolish the monarchy enjoy the party enjoy the four days off and i think in a lot of that discussion about isn't a lot of this pageantry kind of ridiculous you know isn't um why are we kind of celebrating this anachronistic institution there's often this kind of undercurrent to it which is yeah. somewhat irritating which is less about the institution of the monarchy itself which of course despite the queen generally speaking being a quite a good egg is a anachronism um is a democratic outrage and all the rest of it is that often the ire is directed at the people who seem to support it and enjoy it these yeah. forelock tuggers these idiots who are getting a sort of kick out of seeing the carriage go down the mall or whatever it might be and I think that just points to the fact that um obviously the monarchy has been enveloped by a lot of scandals in recent years um everything from um, Prince Andrew through to Harry and Meghan's explosive exit and all the rest of it. But there is still, um, despite the fact it is going down somewhat, there's still mm. very strong support in the country for the monarchy. And I think a large part of that has to do with the figure of Queen Elizabeth herself, obviously, who a lot of people have a lot of time for. Um, and I think represents in an age which is often quite narcissistic, a kind of sense of duty that people quite appreciate you mm. know so kind of narcissistic are the rest of our elites that even the person sat on a gold throne looks like a model of service and self-negation <laughs> by contrast um but there's also the issue of just yeah republicanism such as it is is quite weak mm. um it, a lot of people involved in that movement to the extent that it is a movement just seem to be waiting for the monarchy to collapse <laughs> yeah rather than trying to kind of proactively replace it with anything so um yeah I'm, i like anyone looking forward to the four days off and i find again a lot of that kind of inevitable sneering that has kicked in even if it's just around the edges are kind of points to why this anachronism seems to limp on even this long i mean you could even say that as well as the sneering there's been some hysteria when the union flags started to go up across regent street you know people were talking about this being a heralding a return of fascism next we're going to see tanks on the street <laughs> perhaps boris johnson will proclaim proclaim himself fuhrer as soon as the queen dies so you know there's there's also there's the low level sneering and then there's also the unhinged reaction going on too yeah well anyone who <laughs> pays any serious attention to what india willoughby tweets who has made some of those comments um need to get their head checked you know i'm not uh the biggest fan of the butcher's apron and no i won't be decking myself out in the union jack or wearing paper crowns or things like that but i think tom's point about the um, sort of insubstantialness, if that's a word, of uh, of republicanism is really important because it's not just the kind of 
oh, you're all flag shaggers. Oh, mm. you're all, you know, you're just kind of idiots who, and oh, it costs too much money and blah, blah, all those kind of weak arguments that are made around this time about the Jubilee are also, you know, similarly made about football matches or about Eurovision. There's always this kind of like, oh, you're celebrating being British. Oh, this is so embarrassing and terrible and um, and backward or, you know, fascist if you want to go down the kind of hysterical route. And, uh, you know, it, it, the, the question that you have to ask is, if you are a Republican for substantial reasons, which we are related to democracy in terms of, like, I don't have anything particularly against Her Majesty as a person. It's about the fact of the political significance of having a monarchy and what it means for British democracy, British sovereignty, all that kind of stuff. Um, then you would have a particular view, which we did at Spiked, about the Brexit referendum. Mm. You know, that moment being an interesting and exciting point for asking questions about the future of democracy in this country but the same people you know whether it be radio presenters or others you know who are mouthing off about the jubilee and trying to um gain some kind of kudos social kudos for saying i'm not really like these idiots who fly british flags out of their bedroom windows um are the same people who at the time of Brexit were like, this is little Englanderism, yeah. this is kind of disgusting. So, you know, what is republicanism today? Just sort of, um, if it comes down to saying, I don't like the monarchy because <laughs> Andrew's involved in it, well, that's mm. a pretty low level of engagement. Or if it's that there's too much kind of pomp and pageantry, well, that also is sort of really insubstantial. And as Tom says, it kind of just comes down to a sneering attitude of you don't like British identity um, and you don't like f flag shagging, but you will flag shag when it comes to the European Union or, you know, other yeah. other countries. So it's all a bit hypocritical. Well, it just becomes one dimension in the culture war rather than a sort of serious discussion about democracy. Mm. I mean, Tom, you've raised this question of, of duty and service. Um, some polls recently mm. have um, pointed out that while the Queen is extremely popular, um, I suppose the useful foil to the Queen in terms of the lack of duty and service would be Harry and Meghan. And they've kind of reached a, a low of popularity. I mean, what do you think that says about the sort of two, um, the newer royals versus mm -hmm. the kind of older the royals, you know, embodied in the Queen? No, I think that really um, is the sort of schism, if you like. You see it within the House of Windsor itself, in Harry and Meghan on one side recently departed, even to a lesser extent, kind of um, William and Kate, again, kind of wanting to emote, mm. feeling the need to kind of relate to the public on that kind of more emotionally intelligent level, as they would particularly see it, you know, campaigns around mental health and all the rest of it. The idea that soul bearing is quite important, whereas the kind of sense of restraint and, as I say, kind of duty to the greater good is what I think a lot of people genuinely appreciate about the monarchy. I think Harry and Meghan, incidentally, I think le less as, as part of the monarchy, um, even with one foot out, represent the kind of general attitude within the new elite itself, if you like, you know, mm. whether it's the Silicon Valley set, the political class, the kind of cultural elite more broadly, they kind of reflect a lot of those values, which again, the self is everything, as well as they're just being a kind of, um, again, a kind of grab bag of all of the most irritating modish ideas possible. They tend to kind of um, really embody those. And, I think it kind of again gets to that sort of point about what is it that people actually want and what is it that the people who want to get rid of the monarchy actually want because I can't be the only one who's noticed as Ella was saying that um, the people who are often agitating for this there's not a hell of a lot of them um, are supporters of the European Union there was a Polly Toynbee column the other week saying that um, after <laughs> after the Queen goes you know we can we should have a conversation about a republic and returning sovereignty to the people mm. which is absolutely absurd given the perspective <laughs> that she took on Brexit over the course of recent years um, 
so there is this kind of issue, which is that it's, it is actually a problem if you have an institution that just sort of withers away without something to sort of replace it. The monarchy yeah. does um, have a certain kind of role, very much embodied around the figure of the Queen itself. I think a lot of it is her popularity rather than mm. a kind of deep feeling of affection for the institution itself. If anything, I think a lot of the discussions around is Charles now going to mess it all up speaks to not just the democratic outrage of the institution, but also the, the irrationality, the idea that just the son yeah. <laughs> of the last person who did this job quite effectively is at all qualified by mm. dint of just being there is, is sort of quite ridiculous. But um, I think the problem is that there is not, uh, there's not this kind of proper argument and movement, which is about popular sovereignty, which is about the importance of democracy. And then when you see a lot of the rows, whether it's about Harry and Meghan, whether it's about the European Union, whatever, they're quite comfortable with unelected people ruling over us. They were just rather a different set of people did it. They don't like monarchy, but they like technocracy. Yeah. You know, they don't like um, traditionalism and um, British identity, but they love identity politics. So all of these things, I think, just speaks to the fact that, you know, even if the monarchy did sort of like wither away under the weight of the Queen mo moving on, scandals, um, just more and more bad headlines that make people start to see it as a kind of unpleasant anachronistic institution that's not in and of itself positive yeah. unless you've got something to replace it with which can play a sort of role in cohering the country a sense of values and all the rest of it proper democratic values but there's no real sign of that at this point if anything a lot of the people who want a republic are pushing in the opposite direction a lot of those democratic questions how woke won the brilliant new book by joanna williams is out now it's all about the woke takeover of our institutions and how we, the public, can fight back. You can order your copy today by going to spiked-online.com forward slash shop. That's spiked-online.com forward slash shop. So the British police have seemingly gone full woke. Last week, the police race action plan was launched and officers were told if this plan is labelled woke, then we're heading in the right direction. Other top coppers, including the head of the College of Policing, have said that the police need to be actively anti-racist as well as non-racist. Tom, what have you made of these kinds of developments? It just shows how the kind of the irresistible rise of woke ideology, even in institutions in which you would think <laughs> it would have no necessary inroads, you know, and this is something that even after some of the interventions we've seen in recent weeks around you know the new chief inspector of constabulary saying that you know we don't want to be the thought police mm. these kinds of broadly speaking kind of woke and authoritarian tendencies inevitably creep their way back in um i think you also see the slipperiness of that kind of quote-unquote social justice ideology insofar as saying you know why wouldn't you want a police force that is anti-racist yeah the problem is that we all know that what anti-racist means today which is to be kind of racialist which is mm. to preoccupy yourself with the issue of race even to the extent of essentially kind of undermining the sense of um, a police service being entirely sort of neutral, tre treating perpetrators and victims on an entirely equal basis um, and not letting that as a question creep into it. It's a quite important principle. So the idea that you would kind of rewire the police mm. force around the ideas of like an Ibram X. Kendi or something like this is actually quite a dangerous prospect. But I think it just speaks, it just speaks to the fact that, um, and Joe Williams makes this point in a book, How Woke One, which um, is now out, a uh, little plug there for the first bike book, but um, where so many of these institutions, which have a kind of loss of a sense of mission, coming mm. under a lot of criticism for other ab obvious and abject failures, they, this is increasingly the script that they reach for yeah. in order to justify themselves, to give them a new sense of moral mission, uh, to try and clean up their act to a certain extent. But it has all kinds of very serious and authoritarian consequences when you do. Mm. Um, it's not just that it's um, 
virtue signaling and it's half-hearted and all the rest of it, although it's obviously a huge component of that. It is also kind of realigning all kinds of areas of life, even the criminal justice system, which should yeah. be genuinely blind. Um, for that to reject colour blindness and all these <laughs> ideas is not a good thing, even if they think they're doing it in a more progressive direction. You know, Absolutely. And it's not just on the race front either. So um, earlier this week, a Telegraph investigation found out that some police forces are allowing um, criminals to essentially declare themselves to be one of 67 possible genders or to have no gender at all. Um, equally, um, a policy exchange report came out this week that said that um, self-identification for um, transgender people is now the norm across the criminal justice system, despite there being no change in the law. Um, and what have you made of that kind of front in the... Well, it just, it just shows how kind of, um, how insubstantial and also how sort of thin the idea of adhering to a woke if that's what you want to call it ideology is because if there was ever a place to if there was ever a place to have clear cut distinctions and um, particularly in relation to gender it would be prison you know mm. if, if you try and think of the most vulnerable situation for an individual where all freedoms are taken away where you have no space for choice where you can't decide uh you know who you're going to take a leak next to yeah you know that that then something like sex becomes incredibly important and biological distinction becomes important add on to that the fact that we know that a you know a, a significant number not something that you can turn your face from of people who are transitioning from male to female um to get into women's prisons don't have they aren't just concerned with their own identity but have more sinister um designs we know that there have been some scandals related to uh, rapes happening in women's prisons involving trans prisoners so you know all of that the the idea that the police now is just going to basically ignore that by suggesting that they're on board with um self id this lovely thing which you know maybe an outside society might be a little bit more nuanced is frankly ridiculous but it's also it's just you know that term woke washing comes to mind it's such a load of crap because if you look at the police's um race action plan and it goes into such excruciating detail about how sorry they are about how you know how we're going to be at, you know we're not institutionally racist but we're going to be institutionally anti yeah, what yeah. the hell does that mean? And this is this comes a week after this sort of drippingly um, uh, knee bending kind of um, back whipping report comes a week after Pretty Patel changed the a clause in the stop and search law, which would mean that police have far more powers now because they don't have to just determine whether somebody will commit a crime to stop and search them. She's changed that word will to may, meaning that, you know, from a from a you know campaigner against stop and search's point of view, you you then have the scope for far, for example, far more young black men to be stopped because the police decide that they might look like they would be a criminal rather than they definitely think they will um, have a knife and have a criminal act. So, you know, those two things happening at the same time just show how ridiculous this kind of capped offing to um, identity politics and the kind of those modus trends that Tom talked about are. Because when it comes down to it, the police are the police. They have the power to lock people up. They have the power to restrain people and take away your freedom. They are not your best friend who comes <laughs> along and sort of like gives you the thumbs up for your self ID. It's a total misunderstanding of what role the police play in society. I mean, one of the ways they have sort of tried to, um, you know, reimagine themselves as as your friend, I suppose, to these kind of 
um, marginalized groups that certainly in the past they you know had real problems with is through hate crime and through this explosion in recording of hate crime you know that's now often at the forefront of what the police think their job is to record and to stamp out hate crime and often not just hate crime but non-crime hate incidents which um, seem to have somehow revived the home office wants to um, make even more use of these you know these tools even though they've been essentially struck down by the courts they've never been voted on in parliament and so this kind of um you know these kind of woke measures just never seem to die mm. no matter what happens and that seems to be the story across the piece it's like mm. with the policy exchange report talking about the uptake of the idea of gender self-id which has obviously been something which has been ro roiling politics for a long time something which isn't really settled in parliament you know mm. something that i'm sure will come up again and yet across the criminal justice system it's already been essentially implemented um, yeah. because it's that's what the expert advice is and this is what various different lobby groups are pushing for so it's almost if not law it's kind of de facto the way in which things are done uh, creating these horrendous situations in which say a woman in the courtroom is essentially compelled to refer to a rapist as she or of course the, the karen white scandal mm. um originally called david thompson i believe um imprisoned uh, multiple rapes to his name um, ends up in a women's prison. And I don't think many people realise at the time he wasn't in possession of a gender recognition certificate. Yeah. He hadn't transitioned in any kind of meaningful sense and yet was able to exploit this loophole. And no one voted on this. There was no big public debate about whether or not this is the right idea. It's just something which happens. And I think with the non-crime hate incidents, which is a good example, is the sense in which, even though there has been a lot of public debate about that yeah. in recent years, you have seen the Home Secretary push back against this call for everyone's names who've been logged to be wiped. You've even had interventions from leading police. You've obviously had the courts ruling it unlawful, as you were saying. And yet even that doesn't stop it, mm. you know, because the kind of quangocracy just pushes back and yeah. re reinstalls these things. I think on the relation, just quickly on the relation, like policing and, and um, race, which is an important, which is a, an important one. I think also it's, it's quite a dangerous situation, I think, for the police to imbibe this very modish idea that just um, disparity equals discrimination when mm. the perspective of um, policing comes up. It doesn't matter necessarily what you feel about stop and search itself. The, the fact that, say, in places like London, if um, you're an ethnic minority, you're far more likely to be both the victim and the perpetrator of certain forms of violent crime. And that requires a certain level of response. Um, and I think, the, and a certain, again, recognizing that as a situation, working out how best to remedy it. I think the problem is because there's such a concern about being seen to be discriminatory in any kind of way, shape, or form, what we've seen, certainly more so in America than here, is just a withdrawal from those mm. sorts of communities, leading to spiraling crime and things actually being much worse, you know, even in the midst of the Black Lives Matter movement, much many more black lives being ended unnecessarily because of the fact that, again, a community that might have previously been over-policed is now being under-policed. Yeah. And that is also, I think, a, a dangerous thing, not only just from the perspective of justice should be blind and all the rest of it, and that policing should be should certainly aspire to be colorblind, but the, the ideas kind of swirling around all of this would, could lead them to an even more cruel and disproportionately damaging kind of policy if mm. they're not careful these things are just not neutral in the way that they're often presented this is about the police just being good people it's a certain set of ideas which as we've seen particularly in america can come with some very grim consequences as well spiked is launching an internship program we are offering paid placements to aspiring writers podcasters and video makers who want to cut their teeth at the world's best political magazine you'll work with us for six months full-time in London starting from July, and there's the possibility of more work at the end of it. You can apply for an editorial internship where you'll help us to produce our articles, features, and essays, or an audiovisual internship 
where you'll help us to produce our podcasts and videos like this one. To find out more and to apply, just go to spiked-online.com forward slash interns. That's spiked-online.com forward slash interns. Good luck. So last week, 19 school children and two teachers were killed in a mass shooting in Robb Elementary in Uvalde, Texas. This was the worst uh, school shooting since Sandy Hook in 2012. I mean, Tom, this is such a shocking event. Is there anything in particular that has you know leapt out at you from it? Well, there's so much. I mean, there's the, there's the attack itself, which again, another example of this kind of deep nihilism, mm. um, trying even to wrap your head around something this barbaric, almost like someone doing the worst possible thing they could think of. And obviously this isn't the first time this has happened in, in America in recent years. It's put a lot of people in mind of Sandy Hook 10 years ago. Um, but then you also kind of see the the things that this raises about our kind of ability to respond to these things. In a particular moment, obviously there's been these um, reports which have surfaced about the amount of time it took for the police to directly engage the shooter. I think it was about an hour and 20 minutes between the first 911 call and the police actually shooting him dead or engaging with him. Mm. Um, and reports of parents being stopped, not only demanding that the police go into the school and then choosing not to, uh, but being stopped from entering the school themselves to go and save their children. Some of them ended up just doing taking matters into their own hand regardless of that. Yeah. And this is another story that we've seen repeated. A similar thing happened at the Parkland shooting a few years ago, where again, despite police being on the scene pretty early, they didn't enter the school until the shooter, Nicholas Cruz in that case, had already left. You then see the political response, which again just falls along really simplistic, often culture war lines in a way mm. that really isn't useful. Um, you have the Democrats just, uh, again, talking about this in terms of gun control, even though, as is, as is most likely the case in this situation, as it is often what they're proposing wouldn't have done much to stop something like this from happening. You can ban an AR-15 that doesn't stop someone walking to a school with two handguns. Yeah, You then have this ridiculous defensive response from Republicans, which at the more sillier end is saying, oh, you know, all teachers should be armed and all the yeah. rest of it, which is not a good idea by any stretch <laughs> of the imagination. And it just playing into a kind of sense of Republicans are evil because they're not letting this take place. And it, what you end up missing is um, the fundamental kind of moral questions at play. Why is a small but seemingly quite deadly section of the population willing to engage in this kind of violence. It might be marginal, but it's worth having a discussion about what tendencies might be being inflamed mm. by society or culture or whatever. But also, why do we also have time and again, it feels like, not just in America, but in atrocities that are committed in the UK as well, um, a cowardice often in response to even the most vulnerable in society being targeted. Mm. You know, pe uh, people whose job it is to risk their lives often wanting to hold back either because they're sticking to quite risk-averse policies or because they just don't, for whatever reason, don't feel possessed of that in courage in the particular moment. All of that gets lost when you get into a situation where you're having a discussion about either arming teachers or Republicans being evil because they're over a barrel with the NRA. Yeah. It's simplistic. I mean, we can get into the question of gun control, but at the same time, I think that's all of that is something which is completely missed, even in the wake of another tragedy like this. Yeah, I mean, on Ella, on that sort of question of cowardice, that, that does seem to be like a common thread, not just in, you know, in the most shocking instances like this, but, you know, we've had, um, for instance, teachers not wanting to go back to school, not wanting to teach children just because of COVID, where, you know, many of those are not in an age group that would be particularly at risk. Or you have, you know, the civil servants working from home, even during, you know, complex um uh, you know, operations like the Afghanistan withdrawal or, or being on holiday, <laughs> even worse. Um, I mean, what do you make of that? 
Yeah, well, the central um, argument for what happened in Valde was that law enforcement officers were waiting um, to basically follow the rules so that they had a kind of system in place that when certain amount of backup came mm. and they were sort of themselves happy that they tick basically ticked all the right boxes for process and sort of done a safety assessment it sounds like that then they would go in and this is all happening at a time when you could hear the and that's why parents were going mad trying to get into the at school you could hear shots being fired and that whole kind of sort of blind adherence to following process and not being flexible well it makes you th- you know, the, the first thing that came to mind for me was Grenfell mm. and the whole way in which um, firefighters were pressured into following a system in the abstract rather than actually th- being able to trust their instinct. And, and you know, at the end in Grenfell, they had to break their own rules. But there is this, there is this sort of um, worrying, it's frightening actually, sense that rather than thinking of whether you're a cop or a firefighter or um, you know, an adult basically, mm. that you would have some teacher or whatever, you'd have some kind of sense of public duty and particularly if you have trained to be in those roles, a willingness to sacrifice your own life for other people, you know, most viscerally for children in the yeah. instance of Vivaldi is kind of gone out of the window. And to make a kind of crude comparison, and I'm not really sure how good the comparison this is, but there's something about, you know, the we don't know the reasons behind the full reasons behind and all the details of why this shooter did what he did. Mm. But there has been a trend, particularly a young among young men in America, um, these kind of shooters of having this very sort of narcissistic kind of grievance culture behind their actions. So there's always some kind of backstory of I was bullied and so therefore I took my revenge or society rejects me, I'm an insult, you know, all these kind of things. And there is that sense of sort of deep isolation and alienation, but not just that, but reveling in it yeah. is I think a, it's, it somehow also feeds into the emergency or lack of emergency response, which is that there is this real, um, and the pandemic has made it worse, a real kind of um, ramping up of the idea of kind of, hyper-individualism in this very toxic way, which is that we don't have any responsibility to each other or nothing matters. You know, in the shooter's case, nothing matters, not even children's lives matters other than me gaining my um, satisfaction. In relation to gun control, uh, Tom's completely right. There has been such a um, superficial discussion about this and it does end up sounding like a culture war. But, you know, America does have some (laughs) real questions to answer in relation to not just gun control, but the culture around guns. You know, the fact that in the last two decades, this these kind of levels of shootings have increased, that there's something, you know, relating back to that kind of narcissistic tendency. There is, it's, this isn't, people aren't just buying guns to shoot foxes who, you know, are crapping in their flower beds or, um, you know, engage in shooting as a kind of hobby that people go off into the woods and do with animals. But there's something about that kind of, I must defend my property and, you know, buying guns that are specifically used for killing human beings. Um, that that whole kind of, that tied in with a narcissistic tendency in society and an unwillingness to gauge with each other does have dark consequences. And Kevin Yule's written very well over the years for Spiked about, in the abstract, the importance of gun ownership in terms of um, being independent from the state. And I I tend to agree with that, but you know, you have to engage with the reality of what's happening at the moment. And there is something, you know, to be said that it is, this is a particularly American problem. Um, and there are lots of mentally screwed up people across the world and particularly mentally screwed up young men 
who don't engage in this kind of stuff at the level at which it happens in America. So I would just wish that people would have a kind of, Kevin Mule in his most recent spiked column makes the point that people need to come together like they did more, he says, around Sandy Hook to have yeah. a discussion about what needs to happen rather than just finger pointing and sort of uh, a cultural debate. Mm -hmm. No, I I think it's quite easy, not saying you're doing this, Ella, but I think one of the things that, particularly in terms of the British media reaction yeah. to this, is that there's just complete confusion as to why these Americans are so crazy about their guns. Lack of appreciation for obviously the particular constitutional, political significance to this America being this kind of pretty um, radical experiment in liberty in many respects, to the point where even the state should now not have a monopoly on violence. Mm. Um, and there being values around that, which a lot of people really do cherish. Um and that's something which I think often in the UK we don't really appreciate whatsoever. It's just something which is alien to us. And it can often feed into just general kind of anti-American sneering, if you know what I mean. They're just, you know, crazy hicks or whatever. Again, not saying you're doing that, Ella, but there's often in the discussion it becomes a bit unbalanced. I think even in the US, there's, al there's also something which I think a lot of pro-gun control people should probably take account of is the fact that you have in recent years seen both violent crime and gun ownership really shoot up. Mm. Um, people are looking around and seeing their society really kind of falling apart around the edges again soaring violent crime um again kind of real kind of concerns about particular safety a lot of, a lot of individual cities which are really in the process of going to pot in some cases because um quote unquote progressive policies have been pursued which have just allowed lawlessness really just to run rampant which Defund is on the police being exactly all of, all of this kind of stuff essentially turning uh you know crime into something which is devalued as a category which has mm. consequences um, and in that context, you're going to you're going to see people be more concerned. There is obviously sometimes a kind of hyper fearfulness, kind of fear of the other, which might pre-existed all of this sort of stuff. But that because of a lot of supposedly progressive policies which have been pursued in recent years, and because of the, really the blind eye that has been turned from people in their gated communities from what's been happening as a result of, say, police pulling back or as a result of certain forms of crime being devalued and all the rest of it, um, that people have looked for a kind of response and it almost does become more rational in that situation <laughs> to want to defend yourself um record numbers of women purchasing guns record numbers of african-americans purchasing guns um in order to again have um some form of protection and that's another thing which i think even the kind of liberal coastal elites in america are not really willing to reckon with this isn't all crazed hicks arming themselves to the teeth because they're terrified of the state and they want to form a little survivalist militia or mm. whatever um, there's also a kind of general sense that America is coming apart. It's becoming a much more violent and dangerous place and that the state is not helping to remedy that, um, which is something that I think also probably needs to be reckoned with in that discussion as well. Thank you for listening to The Spike Podcast. We're back every Friday and you can now watch us on video too. Check us out on YouTube or go via the Spiked website which is spiked-online.com. See you next time.